Tonight I am talking to Dr. Ian Hale about his book, The Insider's Guide to Autism and Asperger's. Dr. Hale would like to take this opportunity to thank two important contributors to his book, Professor David P. Burkhardt of Alambic Enterprises in Miami, Florida, for editing, support, and his brilliant art plates, and Mr. Stuart Watson, who designed and created the front and back cover work, the best graphics guy he knows. So, sit back, relax, enjoy the show. So, we're talking about autism and Asperger's today. And I know that you are an activist and an advocate for people with autism and Asperger's, and that you've written a book about it. Yes, both of those things are true, and I have been now for very many years. Uh, I was diagnosed as autistic at the age of seven, and diagnosed as Asperger's syndrome at the age of 40 or 41, I'm not exactly sure which, although um, earlier than that I was aware of the existence of Asperger's, and since then I've been very much involved in um, advocacy, even though before I had qualified and did practice as a special education needs teacher and lecturer. And as we were talking about earlier, since autistic and since autistic people and people with Asperger's make up a small percentage of the population, policymakers are not always interested in helping them. They sort of take a back seat. That's very true. In, in fact, in my experience, um, the opposite is true. They are. Um, not in the least bit interested because, as you rightly say, the autistic percentage within any given population is around 2%, which is to say around 1 in 50 people. Um, people with Asperger's syndrome are much, much rarer than that. And the bottom cynical line and what makes this so outrageous and what makes me want to advocate and to put this message over is that because there is such a small percentage um, politicians don't want to know because there are so few votes in it and there needs to be a complete change of understanding because people with autism and with Asperger's syndrome either or um, can make a massive contribution to society instead of being either sidelined or in many cases actively uh, victimized by it. And this is what I'm trying to put over and the reason why I wrote the book. So one of the questions that crops up frequently in discussions about autism is whether there are more people who are being diagnosed or more people be developing it and what is causing it. Well, my, my suspicion is that, uh, to start with your final question first, is that autism is of two kinds. And I have explained my theory of this in the book. There is what I call classical autism, which is entirely inherited. And there is acquired autism. Uh, the fact about autism is that it is what's called a, it's a syndrome, and a syndrome is defined as a, a constellation of agreed symptoms. That is to say, ticking off a number of boxes, and if a person ticks enough of those boxes in terms of their um, behavior, the way they present themselves, and obviously clinical and psychological testing, then they are classified as autistic and or Asperger's syndrome. Um, classical autism, as I say, is entirely inherited. And I suspect that it has been so for a very, very long period of time. As science and education and understanding have improved, then uh, our ability to 
recognize and therefore diagnose people has improved and basically we're spotting a lot more autistic people than we used to. In terms of acquired autism, which I explain in the book, uh, which can be caused by a number of things including uh, brain diseases like meningitis or um, things like heavy metal poisoning which can change at any age uh, a normal person to having and exhibiting that constellation of symptoms that's what I call acquired autism and uh, those things are of course now because we have definitions of autism and of Asperger's particularly within the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD issued by the uh, World Health Organization uh, we are able to recognize that now and diagnose it but um, my guess is that the actual percentage of population with autism probably hasn't changed but what really has changed is our ability to recognize people with autism which you know has not been uh, available you know before quite recent times to give an example the term Asperger's syndrome to my knowledge um, was never in uh, the teaching curriculum in Britain before 1996 it, it was simply not recognized even though um, Dr. Hans Asperger after whom it was named um, recognized this subcategory or subset of autism uh, back in 1942 so what exactly are the differences between autism and Asperger's syndrome it's a difficult question to answer uh, in, in my practice I have found many people who are autistic but not Asperger's but I have never yet found anyone with Asperger's syndrome who does not display at least two of the um, prerequisites for autism uh, Asperger's syndrome is about a different part of the brain being affected uh, if one inherits autism it means that uh, the, the brain physically as well as biochemically develops differently someone with Asperger's syndrome uh, the same thing applies but in a different area particularly the left frontal lobes although other areas as well and we can see when we look at the genetics the, the difference in the sequences between a person with Asperger's syndrome and a person who is autistic but without Asperger's syndrome I have to emphasize this is an area of biophysics which we still do not fully understand but what is very interesting to note is that people with Asperger's syndrome regardless are on average 10% more intelligent than their uh, peers are uh, and Asperger's syndrome occasionally produces some of the great geniuses um, whose names are almost household these days including Nikola Tesla, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs and uh, it's rumored, although I don't know this for a fact and it's never been either confirmed or denied the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg and, that's and just Bobby Fisher and the great chess player Bobby Fisher indeed was also Asperger's Syndrome there's something Paul Morphy and yes, possibly Aaron Nimzovich and quite a few chess players I think have the symptoms of Asperger's that's very true I agree 
I, I know there's some controversy about retrospective diagnosis of people of being Asperger's syndrome, um, and it, it's it's been much criticised. One of the people who's done this um, is Professor Michael Fitzgerald, who is head of psychology at uh, Trinity College Dublin, and in in my view the the best authority in the world of Asperger's, but he does it with great knowledge, and the more we find out about genetics and are able to test the genetic sequences from people long dead by taking samples from teeth or bones, um, it, increasingly it, this is supporting Professor Fitzgerald's position. Uh, because there really are, as I've said before, these differences in the the sequences. I, I've said that uh, Asperger's syndrome is a subset of autism, or a, a superset of, of autism, if you prefer. Uh, what's very interesting is that many of the sequences which one finds in Asperger's are also common to schizophrenia and we know that many geniuses have also been schizophrenics. Um, so it's, it's very much like a Venn diagram. Uh, you have two circles or three circles which intersect at a certain point. Each, each circle is you know, let's say autism or schizophrenia, for example. Um, but there is this shared commonality which is Asperger's syndrome. It is both a part of both, but separate as well. And that's why I describe it as a subset. Yes. And last I read it is considered like schizophrenia a neurodevelopmental disorder and some of the key genes that deal with the development of the brain are common to both that's correct yes so it is fascinating to think about how all of these things fit together how intelligence perception of reality perception of social situations emotions all go together they, they do. Uh, I think that the way that uh, I'm hoping to get people to think of autism and indeed schizophrenia and Asperger's syndrome is from an, an ontological perspective, whereas psychology and psychiatry tend to look at these things from an epistemological perspective and to explain those two terms ontology is about a state of being about the state of consciousness um, as you rightly say about the perception of reality whereas epistemology is about knowledge and, and this is where we get the diagnoses from and how the agreed constellation of symptoms we discussed earlier um, have been created and when we see those things, a bit like looking at the, the plough in the sky, uh, the stars, um, we recognize that pattern as, yes, this is the plough or this is the great bear. And, and that's why we describe the, these things as uh, a constellation of sim symptoms. And, uh, and that applies very much the same way to the epistemological approach, but what interests me and what I think is far more important in, in terms of experience and in terms of people understanding and in terms of my advocacy is the ontological experience, which is how a person feels, which is about how they communicate and how people communicate with them, how they express or don't express their emotions, um, their range of emotions uh, to bring it down to you know everyday experience for example somebody with autism or Asperger's syndrome always has at least 
one of the five physical senses developed to a very unusual degree, whether it be taste or touch or hearing or either of the other two, always. In, in my case, it's hearing. I, I can hear dog whistles, which most people can't. My hearing range is no greater than anybody else's, but it's different. I'm, I hear higher notes than other people can, but I don't hear the lower ones that many people can. And I've had that tested many times and confirmed uh, as part of my research. Well, going back to the topic of emotions, a lot of people have this idea that people with autism or Asperger's are unemotional. Yes, that, that, is, that is the perception that a great deal uh, of the public do have. And this is, again, something I want to overturn completely. It's untrue. I think it's fair to say that people with Asperger's syndrome and autism have a narrower range of emotion, perhaps, but certainly they don't lack any depth. There is a theory that people with Asperger's syndrome particularly lack empathy. Um, I think the truth is that the opposite is the case, that they are like very big radio receivers. They, they get in so much emotional and other information that they either process it very slowly, which makes them seem distant or aloof, or they cannot process it at all, which makes them seem unempathic. But I think that in fact they feel things far more deeply in many ways. Uh, people with Asperger's syndrome and autism um, generally, almost always in my experience, both personal and professional, are nature lovers. They thrive in natural environments as distinct from urban ones. They are very empathic toward animals, perhaps more so than they are towards other people. Something else I think is very important to understand is that autism is a whole body experience. It is, as you rightly say, uh, a neurological issue, the actual physical development of the brain and the physical shape of the brain. But it's, it also affects, of course, all the body. Um, we understand that uh, with that difference in the brain comes some very clear differences in other areas of the body. Um, for example, uh, gut problems, particularly Crohn's disease and celiac disease. People with autism always have food intolerances, allergy problems, and they vary in uh, how serious and how much they affect the person according to the individual. And, and these things that come with autism are called comorbidities. Um, and you always find these uh, gastric problems with someone with autism. So that is why people with autism and Asperger's have the reputation of being, it's a phrase I hate, but picky eaters. They're not. They have an instinct about what will and will not upset them. And they always have to be very careful about diet. So as I say, it really is a whole body condition. It affects the senses, in the way I've explained in my case about hearing, but I know other people who have Asperger's syndrome who are extraordinarily uh, sensitive to touch, and there's 
always as well this um, underlying problem with uh, allergies, intolerances, and the whole matter of the digestion. And these comorbidities are always present. And it, it's fascinating to read the, the diaries of people like Leonardo, for example, and their eating habits and, and so forth. I think another really good example of this, and somebody else who most certainly had a Spurgeous syndrome, would be Howard Hughes, the uh, aviation pioneer and oil magnate. Yes, yes. Returning to theories of autism, one in particular is popular, and I've seen it in a number of places, and that is that it is the result of an overly masculine brain. Yes, that is, that is a theory that's been put forward, and I think it's a theory that's, that holds a, a great deal of water and is very valid by one of the world's great experts on Asperger's syndrome, Professor Simon Baron Cohen, who is head of the Autism Research Center at the University of Cambridge in England. Um, his theory is that uh, the developmental change in the, in the brain, and indeed the rest of the body, which results in Asperger's syndrome, is caused by an excess of testosterone in the womb. Um, and the result of that, obviously, because testosterone is the male hormone, is that regardless of the gender of the child, they exhibit okay. very extra masculine uh, behavioral patterns. And I think there's a great deal of, of, of truth in that. And I know that he and his team have done a huge amount of research and uh, it's it's very, very interesting and uh, it's ongoing as well. And he calls it the extreme male brain theory of Asperger's syndrome. Now another one is has to do with Neanderthal DNA. Yes, it does, um, and that's a very good point that you raise. And it's always been seen that that there is a conflict between that theory and between that of Professor Baron Cohen. I greatly disagree with that perception, and I've written about it in the book. We now know, because of genetic studies on bones that have been found, a great deal more about Neanderthal people than we knew, even let's say 20 years ago. Now, Neanderthals were a great deal larger than the average person is today, and it is not unreasonable to believe that they produced, as a result of that, more hormones, and that would certainly include testosterone. They would have to have done in order to grow to the size they did. They would have needed more growth hormone, HGH, human growth hormone, for example. And it's impossible to think, unrealistic to think, that they wouldn't have produced more testosterone as well. Um, and it has been found, and Professor Baron Cohen is one of the people who's leading this research, that people with autism have a higher percentage of Neanderthal DNA in them, in their genome, than the average population does. And interestingly, that is also around 2% of the population have an above average level of Neanderthal DNA. The majority of people have about 1% of Neanderthal DNA in them. Uh, in my case, the percentage, and I've had two DNA tests, is 3.9%, which is a, 
a high figure, very, very high figure indeed. So as I say, I, I see no conflict between Professor Baron Cohen's findings and the Neanderthal theory of autism and Asperger's syndrome. I think they fit together very, very nicely. Yes, definitely the robust skeletons and muscular structures would be suggestive of higher testosterone and androgen levels. So I think you are absolutely right there. One of the things we have to remember is that um, obviously the, the, the male gender has the, you know, a far greater amount of testosterone in them than females do. But females, regardless of whether they're autistic or otherwise or, or normal, also have some testosterone in them. It's a very small amount, but it's always present. Um, if the female, for example, and the male both have a significantly greater proportion of Neanderthal DNA within them, then both will have a significantly greater proportion of testosterone in them. That will obviously produce a child and a womb with greater testosterone than normal. And that may well be certainly one of the causes of autism and of Asperger's syndrome. Yes, and there may also be a predisposition. For instance, someone may be particularly sensitive to male hormones compared to another person. So the same womb conditions would affect two infants in different ways. Absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, the first, the first time I even read the word Asperger's was towards the end of 1996. Um, well, I was reading a, a, a journal article and it had been recently published in Britain and, a, and that was the first time that, that Britain actually acknowledged the existence of Asperger's. I never, I never, I was diagnosed with autistic when I was seven, but I never, I never knew I was Asperger's until 2002. That is a late diagnosis, isn't it? Yeah, and it certainly, it certainly explained a lot, and, uh, and obviously it, yeah, it was a life-changing time for me, and, and I took a very long I don't know, I took a fair time to digest it. Yeah, it was, it was, it's an experience I could never hope to communicate with people. And it, and it, well, still so now. And that's one of the reasons that I, I so wanted to write the book and hopefully other books on autism and Asperger's to, uh, you know, to share that experience because there, there must be a lot of people out there who are autistic Asperger's and who simply don't know that they are. You were saying that, you know, other people don't know that a person might be, but the person themselves might well not know, you know, and, and they wonder why they, they stumble through life and and find certain things so so difficult that other people seem to manage um, much more easily. And, and of course, that only increases the feeling of alienation, of being an outsider, because they can't even reconcile themselves to the way they feel, let alone reconcile other people. And, and that, that, well, you know, obviously I, I know about it because of the late diagnosis. Um, Horrible. That was soul destroying, morale destroying, frustrating. Um, you know, and I, I beat myself up a lot about it, you know? And 
if I've written a book for any particular reason, it's in the hope of preventing other people going through some of the experiences that, that I've been through. Regular hours, which means that they have more of an opportunity to sleep regularly. Regular pay, obviously, is a, an important thing. Um, regular tasks at certain times, lunch breaks at certain times in a very regulated way. That, that, that can work for some of them. And it, it does give them shape to life because typically an autistic or an Asperger's person, um, is, is kind of random. And that sort of structure, if they're introduced to it slowly and kindly, and the reasons for the instruct for these for the structure itself are fully explained and they have the opportunity to ask questions, they can fit in very well. And that can be a great benefit. The the downside is that very typically what we see when we look at the pattern of an autistic Asperger's person's life is that they they change employment far more often than normal people do, and they also change location. So basically what I'm saying is that structure can work. Sometimes if it's the, the calling, the real talent that the person has, for example, computer programming, it, it can be a, a lifelong career. Sometimes, on the other hand, the structure may work for a while, but if it doesn't fully engage their intense interest, then they will leave it. So structure is something worth trying, but it's also worth bearing in mind that that structure can also be constricting and they may well kick against it and change jobs frequently. My, my grandfather was a very good example of that. I mean, one of the most important things that uh, one has to bear in mind, I think with anybody, whether they're uh, neuro neurotypical or uh, autistic, is that whatever condition a person has, stress will always make it worse. That doesn't matter whether it's a, a cold or whether it's autism. Stress makes everything worse. It's very important, particularly with autistic people who are more sensitive and who tend to pick up atmospheres of places more so than normal people do it is very important not to pressure and not to stress them because otherwise they'll go into a meltdown or they will simply leave and leave no traces behind an employer needs to be very well aware of that and and that draws us into the the domestic side of life a partner, a friend, a parent, a sibling also needs to know when to encourage and to support and promote and when that gets to a point where it's pressure and the pressure will sometimes very suddenly result in a what looks to normal people a, a disproportionate reaction. So it is very careful, it's very important to handle these people carefully, to explain carefully, and to be, as I say, gentle. And put into the right work environment, of course these people can truly excel. Some of the examples we've discussed earlier. Um, and I think that's why it's important that they go into a, a structured but loose work environment. Somewhere where they're not regimented, for example, about what they can wear. We, we discussed the nature of clothing. But they need to be made to understand that for things like business meetings, they really do have to put a, a collar and tie on, on a jacket. And that, that is, that's very much like an actor dressing for a part. And if you explain it to them in that way, and then they can take it off at the end of the meeting and dress what in a way that's comfortable, that's what I mean by handling it with sensitivity and forethought and kindness. That, that can work very well.
I am looking for a quotation right now from your book about Aspie's finding projects difficult to complete. They get diverted easily. The mind's like a butterfly trap. It is something Aspies need to both recognize within themselves and address. It's primarily their responsibility, and they first need to face up to it. So, this seemed a little strange to me, because we typically think of people with Asperger's as being very focused and having almost superhuman abilities to concentrate. Yes, and that is very true, but uh, once they have mastered a subject, once they feel that they have fully understood it and absorbed it into themselves, typically they then look for something else. And that's what I was saying, that typically the, the pattern for employment and for um, where they live, they, they chop and change much more frequently. And the classic example that many people are aware of, uh, of an Aspie whose behavior was absolutely typical, is Leonardo da Vinci. He is famous for the, the depth and the, the brilliance and the insight and the innovations that he sketched up and which he wrote about. And at the same time, he's equally famous for never having actually completed a single project. Uh, another example would be Van Gogh, the, the great Dutch painter, uh, who in his lifetime never sold a single painting. Now they change hands for tens of millions of, of dollars. But during his life, he, he bartered them against a meal. He would do a sketch, and he would get a meal and a drink. But uh, yeah, his subject matter changed all the time. He, he drew, he painted different things. He made observations in his diary. Uh, his pattern of life was very similar to that of Leonardo. And, and of course, again, he, he traveled a lot. He moved from place to place. Um, to be an Aspie is to, is to be a searcher. So that, that is why I wrote that, and I believe it to be very true. And from my own experience, finishing a project, completing the books that I've done, was something that I had to discipline myself to do. Because you, you find an interesting topic, and you have to say, no, I'm, I'll make a note of that. Hopefully I'll come back to it later. But this is about mission focus. So I suppose it is a misconception that people with Asperger's are fixated on one thing and remain so throughout their lives. To some extent it is, although they normally do have two or three things that go throughout their lives. I mean, in the case of Leonardo as anatomy, it, it fascinated him throughout the whole of his life. It was something that was always there. He, he branched off into numerous things, engineering, map making, painting, sculpture, and all the other things that we know he did. But that was one of the central themes that, that never left him. So yes, they, they, what you say is absolutely right, Adam. They do tend to keep to a few fundamental fascinations and it's from them that they branch off and sometimes they'll they'll leave it for years but they they do go back to the the ones that uh, captured them as as very young people typically and as i say leonardo is a great example and in one of the final chapters of your book you talk about different types of therapy which ones do you feel are most effective or which ones have worked for you Ah, two different questions. <laughs> I think the ones that are most effective are the ones that, that work for the individual. It's very important to remember that people are individuals first, and autistic, and or, and or Aspie, secondly. It, it's a big part of them, and to a large extent it defines them. But we are all, whether we're autistic or otherwise, we're all first and foremost individuals. So what I, the message I try to get over to people is try a number of different ideas, see which fits best for you. In my case, uh, singing and, and writing, um, 
and meditation techniques uh, are the ones that I find uh, most beneficial so far. I know other people with Asperger's syndrome who find that playing computer games um, lets the stress out. I know others who find that uh, physical training, going to the gym does it. Uh, as I say, the message is take on board the possibilities, look at the options, try them for a while, find out which ones work for you and in which combination. And of course, that applies equally for carers. I think for education for for Aspies, it's terribly important that they should be exposed as early as possible to lots of different subjects. And teachers and parents need to be aware of the ones that capture their attention and the ones that they display the most abilities at. And then again, don't push but encourage them to explore that further. And we, we discussed earlier in this interview the case of Bobby Fisher. Now, for him, chess was the was the magic key that opened the door for the world, uh, in his case. So expose them to a, a lot of different options, but don't push. Find find what makes people happy, you know, is is, is the point here. Bobby, it was an all-consuming obsession, though. Yes. Which is unhealthy, to say the least. Well, I don't think it was unhealthy for him. It, uh, it, it gave him everything, or pretty much everything that he ever wanted in life. So sometimes that, that, uh, that obsessiveness, that search, I mean, he invented a completely new form of chess, in fact two forms, he wrote books on it which are still being read, discussed and analysed uh, today and I'm sure will be for the foreseeable future uh, and I think that would have given him a great deal of satisfaction because he was trying to give the world a message that chess in his case was a reflection of life and that was the lesson I think that he was trying to teach people. And they're still learning it. But he was, like, barring his mental illness, he seemed to focus on that above everything else, including his own emotional development. Yes, which I think was minimal at best. <laughs> no, minimal or non-existent. <laughs> I, I, it's You can't call him a bad person because he was clearly very ill. Yes. Paranoid. I mean, he went well beyond eccentric into the realms of, of, of being dysfunctional on occasions. Uh, and some of those occasions were for long periods of time. I mean, he, people think he retired from chess, but he, he then took a different name and then uh, played a lot of online chess. Uh, one of the people that he who realized that he'd been playing against Bobby Fischer uh, at, an early, at an early stage in his career uh, was the English chess grandmaster Nigel Short. And it was only about two years afterwards that he realized, my goodness, I can see from the way that this guy played that I was playing against Bobby Fischer. Wow! But yes, I mean, Bobby Fischer was... The, the person that I would draw a comparison with with Fischer is... Howard Hughes, who I would also have no doubt whatsoever was Asperger's Syndrome, a genius, um, an, an inventor, an innovator, a pioneer, a very brave man, um, but, you know, clearly obsessive and eccentric to a point that, well, frankly caused him to die earlier than he should have done. And exactly is true of Bobby Fisher. And now that leads me on to the, the second S that I wanted to discuss after structure. And, and that is something that is not talked about outside the Asperger's community. And that S is suicide. People with Asperger's syndrome have a suicide rate more than 40 times higher than the general head of population. And that is something that needs to be understood. The problem with Asperger's people is 
not lack of emotion, not lack of em empathy. It's that they, they're very big discs. They, they tend to take on too many signals and that basically scrambles their heads and many self-medicate with either legal drugs or illegal drugs, alcohol, sometimes self-harming. Bobby Fischer would be a good example of self-harming. Um, so would Howard Hughes. Um, and if that doesn't work for them, then they very often do, as Van Gogh did, commit suicide. And that is something that, that needs to be understood by the public at large. That these people do need to be kept an eye on. And suicide is not something that we should be afraid to talk about. And most people are afraid to talk about it outside the Aspen community. And that is why I was very clear that I did want to mention it clearly in context within the book in the hope of stimulating debate and understanding. It's a heavy subject. The other rate was that high. Yes, it is. The average age that an Asperger's person lives to is 46 years and three months. And of course, many of them, like Howard Hughes, do continue into their 70s, which is a, a near no normal lifespan. But an awful lot, particularly at the late teen, 20s stage, they do commit suicide in one way or another. It may not be a single direct act, but cumulatively, like Jim Morrison, yes it is. He famously quoted when he was asked about his drinking, he said, I'm not sure whether it's a question of uh, slow capitulation or suicide. I don't know. This is another example in which raised awareness will be helpful in identifying and helping people to prevent mm. this. Indeed. And I think that people, I think it's inexcusable as late as the 1990s that, that people didn't recognize that impulse within, for example, Kurt Cobain. That there are people around who ought to be taking a, a long look at themselves and the way that they behaved. Back in Jim Morrison's time in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't understood. By the time we got into the 1990s, it was. But it's still not understood now properly. And I, and I really did intend to, to bring this subject to the forefront. Happier topic. You mention teaching sign language young people with autism. Yes, because it's a it's a, a different mode of communication, and I think it's important. Plus, it it opens up, firstly, the potential of a of a career. Secondly, as I just said, it's a another way of communicating for those who are, are non-verbal and we, we have to remember that a lot of autistic people are non-verbal and thirdly it, it opens up a new social world to them of, of people who sign because they have to sign because they're deaf increases their, their potential for fitting in for, and for meaningful con contact and that includes on the emotional level as well. And I imagine that gaining some mastery over the motions of sign language is also useful and it teaches them how to use their hands in conversation so they can talk yes. like Italians. Exactly, it's, it's kinesic learning, uh, learning manually essentially. This is why I encourage people to take up juggling if they're able to and you can teach people numbers by um, batting balloons or bean bags around. One, two, three. One, two, three, six. One, two, three, nine. And as they, that combination of sound and physical contact around a group, that, that's proven to be a very effective form of uh, teaching for some. Yes. 
I, I think it is unfortunate that some of the psychotherapies like Gestalt and ones developed by Wilhelm Reich are not more popular because, of course, there's a lot of things rooted in the body. And once you learn how to gain some control over it, you might dissolve some barriers and blockages. It might be better <laughs> than uh, meditating on the Oedipus myth. <laughs> yes. Um, this is why I encourage people to try to dance if they can. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a terrible dancer, but at least I've, I've made some kind of an effort and uh, and enjoyed it, even though it was probably, a, when I've done it, it's probably a horrible spectacle for other people, but it, it certainly let off some stress, lets off some stress for me, even if it probably increases it in the audience. <laughs> Although it might give people a good laugh, which also is, terribly important to release stress. So maybe it's a good thing both ways. And and also why I encourage the, the next S that I want to talk about, and that is sport. Um, if you can learn a sport, it doesn't matter whether you're good or not, as long as you're good enough to enjoy it, um, sport again opens up a lot of extra ways of communicating. You meet different people through sport. It gets you fit, uh, and we really shouldn't impose, as as many psychologists have done, unfortunately, some kind of a barrier between body and mind. If if the body's healthy, the mind will be. If you if the if you take the body away, then there is no mind. If you chop someone's head off, they're not going to be talking anymore. Basically, so I definitely encourage sport of whatever type, if it's just going out to a club once a week and playing darts, well, that's good. That's progress. Please do it. Table tennis, excellent. You can do it indoors the whole year round. And that's another reason why I encourage martial arts. Something like judo imposes discipline, physical release, learning, as well as the obvious benefits of self-defense. And like playing an instrument, learning how to dance, or learning any routine actually alters your brain over time. Yes, it, it, it uh, engraves new engrams in the brain, and uh, that those are skills, and they might not be that useful at the time, but it's like anything else. If, you, if it's there, you might find it useful at some time. I mean, there's... There's the classic adage that you, you have something in the house for years. It could be something very small, a screwdriver, a, a tin of paint. Um, and you think, oh, for goodness sake, I'm going to declutter. You chuck it out. It's axiomatic that within two weeks, you'll, you'll need it and wish you hadn't thrown it out. And I think that's the same with putting extra engrams in the brain. Maybe 20 years later on, uh, you'll find that that skill which is always going to be a transferable skill, can come in very useful, even if it's only a matter of being able to make conversation with someone with a topic that you remember from a long time back. That can make a social contact, that can make a business contact, and that indeed can make a romantic contact, which leads me on to the final S that I would like to discuss, which is sex. That was a pretty neat segue, man, wasn't it? <laughs> it was, and I drew an S. All right, the floor is yours. We we discussed earlier, Adam, the inability of people with autism or Asperger's syndrome to pick up social cues and facial expressions, did we not? We have. And as that applies to business, as that applies to social events like parties and dinners, it obviously applies to uh, romance and sex. Um, it's extremely difficult for an autistic person to pick up what is an encouragement to escalate a relationship, what is a sign that the person wants to be friends, but they don't want to be more than friends. What is a sign that they basically wish that they were talking to somebody else um, before the fact that they actually get up and do talk to somebody else? 
and of course, in the same way as people with autism and Asperger's don't pick up cues from other people, they don't give out those cues themselves. So they don't know how to approach someone that they find attractive and make that connection to to see if that person wants to take it to another level and then maybe another more intimate level. And that, of course, causes a great deal of emotional confusion and conflict. And as I said before, all stress, frustration, makes any condition worse. It will only drive the person back deeper into themselves. And it's the root of something I've discussed in the book, the concept of strange man or strange woman syndrome. People with autism can definitely come over as creepy. They're not. But to an NT who doesn't understand what they're seeing, or indeed doesn't understand that they're not getting responses to the cues that they're giving out, whether they be positive or negative, um, you know, that's a really big problem. And it is, it is something that people with autism need to understand, first of all, that they have this problem, and then uh, try to find s someone or some program, uh, perhaps uh, from a psychologist, which will teach them to improve these uh, romantic and, and sexual communication difficulties. Because, I mean, sex is one of the, the fundamental human drives. And anybody who pretends it is and is living in fantasy world, we, we need to be adults about this. We need to address it. And the fact is that autistic people go through adolescence and into adulthood in exactly the same way as everybody else. They might do it a little earlier. They might do it a little later. Nevertheless, it's the same thing. And in the final analysis, um, Aspie, autistic or not, everyone wants to love and wants to be loved. Although Newton, Tesla, Da Vinci, Bobby Fischer were all asexual, close oh, to no, it. I have to disagree. I mean, da, da Vinci was quite clearly a gay man. Michelangelo was very flamboyantly so. Bobby Fischer was, like most of Spurgeon's males, extremely heterosexual. Uh, Tesla, yes, he, he was asexual. Um, but Van Gogh, for example, most certainly wasn't. He was also extremely heterosexual. So, no, I, I think the idea that uh, people with Asperger's um, are asexual is, is not the case. They, I think many of them give up. And, you know, they try, they fail, they try, they fail. And then, I think in the case of Tesla, he was able to harness the, the sexual energy into intellectual and engineering and publicity, which is one of the things that made him a superman. Because sexual energy, you mentioned earlier, Wilhelm Reich, probably the, the real disciple of uh, the importance of sexual energy understood this but uh, if it's if it can be directed into some other thing that gives it a huge power whatever that other thing is in tesla's case of course it was physics but uh, in the main i believe one of the ways to enlightenment to to understanding one's higher self is through sex And, and to close one of those pathways off is, is something that, uh, is unnatural and, and I think, uh, inhuman and extremely negative. And it is something that, that needs addressing. So again, I'm asking people, please be a bit more open-minded. 
please ask the the autistic or the Asperger's person if you're getting mixed cues or no cues ask them a straight question be direct because normally you'll get a direct answer you might not like it or you might like it a heck of a lot um, because autistic and Asperger's people can be very gentle and very very imaginative let's say well you said in your book that it is a myth that people with Asperger's cannot lie they certainly can and you would not want to play poker with one of them I did say that uh, because of the, the lack of, of cues that people with autism and Asperger's give out uh, in many ways they have the classic poker faces they they don't show they don't give the little telltales away that a poker player would normally look at in an opponent um, so yes it's almost impossible to tell when an Aspie is bluffing <laughs> oh. I mean I'm a, I'm a really good poker player for example and I know one or two other Aspies who are very good poker players as well. I got to 